0: Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal podcast for December 2023. I hope you're all starting to feel very festive and about to enjoy tucking into your festive issue of the Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. And we're going to be taking you through some of the best papers that we've got Uh, published in this month's edition of the Emergency Medicine Journal. We're going to start off with a little bit of an ultrasound feast. We've got a hat trick of papers on point of care ultrasound. Sarah, starting off with ultrasound for the diagnosis of radial fractures.
1: So, yes, thank you, Rick. So I'm looking at the first of our hat trick of papers, looking at the point of care ultrasound guided versus standard reduction of Displaced Distal Radius Fractures in the Emergency Department, a Randomised Controlled Clinical Trial. And the first author is Svenja Hack, and these are some of our colleagues from the Netherlands, um, and it's looking at some of their work. So um, essentially they did a multi-centred, randomised controlled trial uh, between December and July of 2020, So starting December 2018 through to July 2020 in four hospitals in the Netherlands. And what they wanted to do uh, was recruit patients aged over 16 who presented to the emergency department with a distal radius fracture requiring closed reduction. And they were randomized either to point of care ultrasound guided or standard reduction, which usually involved the use of an X-ray. To and then reduction. Their primary outcome was the proportion of patients requiring more than one reduction attempt. With secondary outcomes were time to complete reduction and treatment plan at ED discharge was that conservative or operative repair. So a total of two hundred and fourteen patients were screened, and two hundred and eleven made it in. um, With 87% being female, median age of 68 years, 94% of them had dorsal angulation, 59% had intra-articular fractures, and 73% of them had multi-fragmentary. And in total, there was 105 patients randomised to the standard treatment and 106 patients randomised to the POCUS-guided fracture reduction. So what happened and what did they do? With these patients, um, it's important to bear in mind the baseline characteristics were fairly similar and they were you know, allocated, as I discussed before, what they found. So in the standard treatment group, 13 patients required more than one reduction attempt compared with six patients in the POCUS group. That had an odds ratio of 2.35, with a confidence interval at 95% of between 0.86 to 6.45. The median reduction time was about five minutes in the POCUS group, and that had an interquartile range of three to six minutes, versus three minutes in the standard reduction group, uh, with an interquartile range of between two to four uh, the standard reduction time had a p-value of less than 0.001. At ED discharge, operative repair was indicated for 17 patients in the standard group and 21 patients in the POCUS group with an odds ratio of around 0.78 and again a confidence interval at 95% of between 0 to 3.9 to one58 The bottom line with this study and how the authors concluded it was that they could not demonstrate that POCUS-guided reduction of distal radius fractures was associated with a statistically significant decrease in the number of reduction attempts. Rick, what do you think?
0: Well, really interesting study. Now, there was a difference in the proportion of patients who needed more than one attempt at reduction wasn't there it went from 12 percent in the standard treatment group to six percent in the POCUS group but that wasn't statistically significant now if that difference was actually true it's a halving of the need for uh, more than one attempt which would be fantastic the problem was that this trial ultimately wasn't powered to detect a difference of that magnitude and so the confidence intervals were too wide they didn't detect a statistically significant difference, but it doesn't mean there isn't a clinically significant difference between the treatments. And you have to then go back to the sample size calculation and ask, well, did they design the trial appropriately? And how did he end up uh, you know, so underpowered? Well, I think they anticipated that a much greater proportion of patients would require more than one reduction. They estimated that 38% of patients in the standard care group would require a repeat attempt versus around 19% in the intervention group. And actually they got 12% and 6%. So it was far rarer that they needed more than one attempt in this trial. Perhaps that's because, as we know, when patients take part in clinical trials, they tend to get better standard of care. We know that from previous studies and perhaps that's what happened here. So we got better reductions and therefore the study was effectively underpowered. So we're going to need more research to answer this question.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing, I don't know whether you picked up on the paper there, Rick, was about the um, Cohen's kappa um, looking at the agreement between the treating physician and the study team in the POCUS guided reductions. So actually that was only 66%, which is reasonable. But um, I think that in standard x-rays, it doesn't quote it in this paper, but I know from other studies that actually that um, agreement about angulation and how much is often a lot higher and I wonder whether an element of you know agreement about you know increased reductions and all of that, and the outcome and the difference between all the treating clinicians with the pocus is is maybe because there isn't enough studies or work done to determine how best not best you reduce it but how much angulation can you can you see and and those sort of standard um things that you often do with you know uh, limbs may have a, an impact as well. You know, I don't know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think those sort of patient-centered outcomes um, might be more important, I guess, in the long run. Do the patients ultimately get better function if they've had ultrasound-guided manipulation? Because the clinicians can see how the fractures aligned at the point of care and they can reduce it um, without sort of having to defer to x-ray later before they commit to immobilising that wrist. So that really begs the question of, did they get all of the outcome measures right in this trial? Were there other things they might have studied in the future? And that brings us nicely on to the next paper, which was also looking at points of care ultrasound to guide the manipulation of distal radial fractures. So we had a feasibility randomised controlled trial from Hamza Malik and colleagues also published in this issue of the Emergency Medicine Journal. They ran this trial at two emergency departments in England. They were a little bit unlucky with this one because they started in October 2019, but this coincided with the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So they, uh, they recruited through the start of the first lockdown, actually. And I'll tell you a little bit about this trial. Basically, they got patients with a distal radial fracture who were undergoing manipulation and they randomized them either to ultrasound-guided manipulation or manipulation with, and this is one of the really interesting features of the study, a sham ultrasound. So in the control group, to blind the patients, they still had an ultrasound scanner, but they didn't turn it on. They turned the screen away from the patient or the participant and they pretended to do an ultrasound. So it was a really interesting approach to blinding in the trial. And they were essentially looking to see if they could recruit sufficient number of patients to this trial and get adequate data collection, get adequate follow-up to justify recruiting to a really big randomized controlled trial, which the previous trial demonstrated that we absolutely need. They did manage to show feasibility with those recruitment measures. And they did have a little sneak peek at what the clinical outcomes might be, uh, which, of course, we had to take with a pinch of salt because it's grossly underpowered being a feasibility study. But so far from this study, there's again no signal to benefit with point of care ultrasound. At six weeks, six patients in each of the groups had undergone uh, surgical fixation of that fracture so that's 26% of patients in the intervention group versus 24% in patients in the control group now it is a feasibility study so please do take those findings with a pinch of salt um but once again so far we've not got any convincing evidence of the superiority of ultrasound guided manipulation for these patients with distal radial fracture but we await the findings of that big trial Sarah what did you think about the feasibility study
1: I think it's um Really good that we've got a variety of papers. I think it's really good that we're doing a feasibility study. Love the way they've done it. Shame it was underpowered. And I think it's nice to see that we're starting to get, you know, randomised control trials and different types of study doing with um, ultrasound. And it's nice to see that we're moving away from just case series. So I think it's, you know, watch this space for a little bit more. And, you know, the jury is still out on some of the utility of POCUS and ultrasound in the ED But I think that the the jury for some things is coming towards us and coming back in, I think.
0: I completely agree. Great to see two RCTs of ultrasound and two RCTs in this issue of the Emergency Medicine Journal. That's very positive for us. We will complete our hat trick of ultrasound studies by looking at a study evaluating ultrasound in thoracic and abdominal stab wound injury. Sarah, you've taken a look at the FETA study.
1: Yeah, so this is the FETA study uh, done by our French colleagues. And it's not FETA as in that famous Greek cheese that you've got. It's the Fast Echographie dans le Traumatis Thoracique et Abdominal Study. So the FETA study. Apologies for any native French speakers. I may have butchered that and I can only apologise. But it's FETA as in t h a. And done by Bouzid et al. uh, in France. And this was looking at the use of ultrasound in thoracic and abdominal stab wound injuries. So this study was conducted between December 2016 and December 2018. And all patients underwent initial investigation with both EFAST and CT scan. Except where there were cases of hemodynamic instability or respiratory instability. And in cases with a positive diagnosis by EFAST in which the case surgery without CT scan was performed. So important to understand the context and the environment that they were working in. So in France, any patients who have a stab wound are admitted directly to the intensive care. So these are intensive care doctors who are doing the scanning of these injuries. So they had 200 consecutive patients included, 14 were unstable patients and they they underwent surgery immediately after the eFAST scan. So uh, what happened was patients came in to the intensive care unit, usual procedures were uh, an eFAST examination performed by one of the intensive care senior physicians with at least three years of experience from the team. The eFAST protocol uh, consists of combined ultrasound evaluation of the chest and abdomen, allowing for the detection of different injuries such as what you'd expect, so a pneumothorax, a hemothorax, pericardial effusion and a hemoperitoneum. After the eFAST, the patients underwent a contrast-enhanced CT scan and... Any of those that were really unstable, so less systolic blood pressure of less than 90, low saturations, less than 90% of admissions, and justified emergency surgery, as opposed to waiting for the CT scan, just went to the theatre. The CT scan was interpreted by a senior radiologist, unaware of the results of the EFAST scans, and then the patients underwent subsequent surgical exploration according to their clinical presentation, severity, or imaging. Of the patients that were eligible, so there were two hundred stab wounds. Um, One hundred and eighty-six of them underwent both an EFAST and a CT scan. Uh, so there were eighty-six thoracic injuries, sixty-eight thoraco-abdominal injuries, and thirty-two just abdominal injuries. With that. Uh, 28 on eFAST had a pneumothorax diagnosed, with 22 being diagnosed on a CT scan with having a pneumothorax. Hemothorax was diagnosed with uh, 36 patients on eFAST and 31 on CT scan. And a hemoperitoneum was diagnosed on 11 patients with an eFAST scan and 8 on a CT scan. 32 uh, thoracic surgeries occurred with 48 chest strains. And when those that had abdominal surgery, they had a variety of injuries from gastric injuries, bowel injuries, liver injuries, splenic injuries. Um, And six patients, in fact, had no abdominal lesions. When we looked at those that just had the eFAST and then were rushed to emergency surgery because of their instability, nine had thoracic injuries, two had thoraco-abdominal injuries, and three had abdominal injuries. Uh, the diagnosis prior to surgery by the eFAST was nine cardiac tamponades, one hemothorax and one hemoperitoneum. There were a few that uh, I don't think they even got an, there wasn't a result for the EFAST scan, so there's three. And then interestingly, for surgery, nine had cardiac tamponade, uh, one required surgical drainage, one had bowel suture, uh, one had a liver suture, and two had inconclusive laparotomies. So, really great table within the paper, worth having a look at. And looking at the, um, the paper then went to look at the sort of sensitivity and specificity and the positive predictive values of EFAST diagnosis compared with CT scans in the 186 stable patients. So for pneumothorax, the sensitivity was 77% with a confidence interval uh, of 95% with a, a range of between 54 to 92%, a specificity of 93%, A positive predictive value of sixty percent and a negative predictive value of ninety-seven percent, given an overall accuracy of ninety-two percent. Hemothorax, interestingly, had a ninety-seven percent sensitivity, a ninety-six percent specificity, an eighty-three percent positive predictive value, a negative predictive value of ninety-nine percent, with an accuracy of. 96% and a hemoperitoneum um, had a similar sensitivity to a, a pneumothorax of 75%, a specificity of 97%, a positive predictive value of 55% and a negative predictive value of 99% with an accuracy again of 96%. So what does this all mean? What's the bottom line? In patients admitted with stab wounds to the torso, the eFAST was not sensitive enough to diagnose a pneumothorax and a hemoperitoneum, but performed better in the detection of cardiac tamponade and hemothorax than other injuries. As the authors state, more multi-centred studies are needed to better define the role of eFAST in this specific population. Rick?
0: So... I thought this was a really interesting exercise in sensitivity, specificity and predictive values. So I think we all understand that ultrasound has a high specificity and a lower sensitivity generally. So we think of it as a rule in test because we think that specificity is what we need to rule in. It generally is. We spin things in, spin them in, high specificity, or um, we sniff them out, snout, high, high sensitivity to rule a condition out. So when you see for example that for hemoperitoneum we have a 75% sensitivity and a 97% specificity we might think yeah it just goes with what i thought ultrasound is good for ruling in hemoperitoneum and not that good for ruling out great but then you look at the predictive values and we see that actually because hemoperitoneum is so rare in this population the prevalence is so low the the although the specificity is high if we use our Bayesian principles, what we're essentially doing is we're increasing that pre test probability to a much higher post test probability. But if we start really low, very low prevalence of hemoperitoneum, the post test probability will still be low, even after a test with a high specificity. And that's what we see here. So for hemoperitoneum, that positive predictor value of 55% does not rule in hemoperitoneum by any means. You wouldn't want to send all of those patients for a laparotomy, knowing that almost half of them won't have hemoperitoneum at all. Similarly, the, speci- the uh, positive predictive value for pneumothorax was 60%. And for hemothorax it was only 83%. That's the highest they got. So really, it confirmed to me that the ultrasound here was, wasn't ruling in. The, like, like, the, this is the use case for ultrasound. We rule in these serious conditions and then we act on them. And we do that rapidly, even before a CT scan. But this study is showing us we don't necessarily rule in with the ultrasound. And you know what? We almost rule out because the negative predictive value for each of those three uh, conditions was between 97 and 99%. So if you've got a really low pretest probability in your patient, an ultrasound is closer to ruling out than a positive test is to ruling in. And that was a really interesting finding of the study, I thought. I'm not sure... That any of us would really feel confident ruling out a condition as serious as hemoperitoneum using an ultrasound scan because we're relying on the low prevalence to do the work, knowing that a quarter of cases w- w- who have hemoperitoneum would actually be missed. That's because the sensitivity is only 75%. So do you know what? I'm really sorry to those people who are ultrasound phonetics out there, but this study did not convince me about the role of eFast in patients with stab injuries. It convinced me that in most cases where the patient is stable enough to wait for CT, that actually CT is a far better investigation.
1: I think the other thing that's important to note about this paper, I think it's a really interesting study. But again, the external validity, so can I take this to my emergency department or can I take this to the UK is is quite low. These are intensive care doctors who have had three plus years training of ultrasound. That is a different set of people that I work with in my emergency department. And I think that's another important point to note. It doesn't detract away from the really interesting paper and the great paper. But again, useful to know, but would need to be done in the emergency department to see if that makes a difference for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Great points. And a really interesting paper, actually. Moving on, it's the middle of winter now. And unfortunately, we are seeing a little bit of COVID around in our emergency departments. So we've published a couple of papers on COVID-19 in this month's issue. Uh, They go back to a time when COVID was particularly problematic for us. And we've got one paper which takes a really nice big data approach to telephone triage of patients who are phoning for emergency help with possible COVID-19. So this study comes from Italy. It's from Stefano Spina and colleagues from the AREU 118 EMS Network collaborators. And they took data from the sort of peak of the pandemic October 2020 to December 2021 from patients who had called for, for emergency help regardless of their symptoms and their, their, re- their reason for the call. What they wanted to do is develop a prediction model well actually a series of prediction models that could help them to identify which patients might have COVID-19 even before doing any tests and even get before getting to see the patient. Now this was really ambitious and I have to congratulate the authors on managing to pull the data together from so many different sources. So what they've done is they've they've taken data from call handlers, which they've called an operator based interview. So this is data collected over the telephone. Really um, impressively during that time, the call handlers had asked the same series of questions of all patients. Now that is remarkable in itself in the UK, we selectively ask questions of patients who call for emergency help. So, for example, we'll say, is the patient responding to you? And if you say no, then the call handler knows enough to dispatch a Category 1 ambulance to you. If if you say, are they breathing normally? And you say no, they don't ask any more questions. They just dispatch a Category 1 ambulance to you. Whereas in this study, the call handlers had asked the same series of questions and there were nine or ten questions that they went through with all of the patients. They then dispatched an ambulance and when the ambulance arrived they'd collect some clinical data on the patient's mental status, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation etc. And then they linked that to data on what happened to the patient. So they had uh, the PCR results from the patient either in the seven days before the ambulance call or the seven days after the ambulance call so they knew if patients uh, had documented COVID-19 infection plus they also really impressively linked these data sets to local epidemiological data so they knew about the prevalence of COVID-19 at the time of the call which could then be factored in as a potential predictor. So it's a really nice design. And then they've used a series of different machine learning techniques to develop four prediction models that might help us to risk stratify those patients. So the first one, for example, just uses information available to the call handler. And then they add in some clinical parameters that are available from the on-scene ambulance. And then they add in the epidemiological data about how much COVID was around at the time. And they derived a number of different models. So, First thing to say is congratulations to the authors on getting that done, because that is no mean feat. I know because I've done a plenty of big data research in recent years and it's, it's really difficult. So they've done a good job there. They got data from over 680,000 ambulance calls during that time, which, again, is really impressive. And so they divided their data into a training set and a validation set. So they've developed the prediction models in their training set and then they validated it in a validation set. So it's kind of internal validation that we'd call it. And there were nearly 240,000 patients who had data in the validation set. So the first thing they looked at was the sensitivity and specificity of the call handler. Basically those eight, 9 or 10 questions at the call handler and uh, asked all patients, they looked at the sensitivity and specificity of that interview, basically. So if you answered yes to any of those questions, then you were classed as positive and you might have COVID-19. And they found that that algorithm had a sensitivity of 85.5% with a specificity of 58.7%. Now, I've just told you about positive and negative predictive values, which really matter, now, those are going to be really subject to prevalence in COVID-19. You know, if your prevalence goes up, the, the PPV is going to go up. If your prevalence goes down, the MPV is going to go down, going to go up, sorry. Uh, and so we, we pay maybe less attention to those in this case. So I'm just going to skip past them. I'm going to let you to hang on to those values. 85% sensitive, 59% specific. They then developed these four models using sophisticated machine learning techniques. They did really well to get very complete data sets. And um, they found that their model that included all the possible data had a sensitivity of 87.3% and a specificity of 54%. Compare that to the values I just talked about. 85.5% versus 59% specificity. Now we've got 87.3% versus 54.2% pretty similar, right? It's pretty similar to routine care. Now, the authors did go on to do some sophisticated modelling to talk about how using these models might have affected patient flows. And they demonstrate through their modelling that you'd get much more accurate risk stratification using the machine learning models. So you'd get, uh, without using the uh, machine learning models, we'd get 61.6% of patients identified appropriately when the prevalence of COVID-19 was low When we use it after the machine learning model is implemented, we expect 82% of patients to be accurately identified. So it does improve it. But if you just look at sensitivity and specificity, it's not that much better. (laughs) Now, I will pick out a couple more interesting things. But in this data set, they also looked at the predictive value of individual parameters. So they looked at things like your age. And if you're over 74, do you know what? You were less likely to have COVID in this data set. They looked at whether you were male and whether you were likely to have COVID. If you were male, you were less likely to have COVID, significantly less likely to have COVID, which is not what we expect. If you've had a close contact with COVID, you were significantly more likely to have COVID. No surprises there, but the odds ratio was 67.5. So significantly more likely. But there were all the surprises. If you were short of breath, you were less likely to have COVID. Um, if you had tachycardia you were less likely to have COVID and if you had hypotension you were less likely to have COVID. So I guess those are things that you might take for granted um, and think you know well these are obvious predictors of COVID and in fact they weren't because I guess those patients were calling for other reasons. Ultimately there's a commentary that links to this paper and it links this to the sort of happy hypoxia that we saw in COVID-19. You know the, the patients who can sit and talk to you and sound like they're absolutely fine and yet they had severe COVID-19 pneumonia and low oxygen saturations and maybe what the authors were really trying to achieve here is identifying that silent hypoxia using a telephone call and they have got some models that improve flows whether they're better than a simple interview using a series of questions hmm I'm not sure the jury's still out on that one Sarah what did you think
1: um, I think we we were discussing before um, we were recording our podcast about those patients that we saw back in the height of COVID, which is hard to believe was, you know, three, three years ago. Now, those patients coming in with, you know, that were young, that were old, which had, you know, sats of 75% on 15 litres through a non rebreath mask, who were just sat there quite casually, just on their phones, you know, reading their phones, looking so well in inverted commas and then sadly were dead within a matter of hours or days after just given the degree of hypoxia and and the COVID burden and you know still to this day you know we I was saying you know I still cannot take those images away from me they were hugely impactful and hugely huge numbers of people we were seeing with that and I think the commentary. And I think this paper really is a reminder of, you know, where we were, where we are now. And, you know, COVID, thankfully, touch wood, is not to the level it was before. But, you know, sadly, we still have people dying of COVID. And we're increasingly in winter, seeing more patients with COVID as the weeks are going on. So yeah, it's um, it's a, almost a bittersweet reminder, really but an important lesson going forward because there will be lots of clinicians who may be listening to this who can't or didn't see those sort of patients in the height of COVID. And it's important that we we don't forget that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, elsewhere, we've seen evidence that um, the happy hypoxia, I guess, the silent hypoxia that we saw that was so frightening in COVID-19, also happens in other conditions. It also happens in patients with COPD. And it's just a reminder that, you know, the look of the patient when they're talking to you doesn't necessarily tell you about their oxygenation. We have to check it. Um, we were so often surprised, I think, weren't we, in uh, the the, pan- the heart of the pandemic when we measured oxygen saturations in these patients who were happy talking to us and we saw them so frighteningly low in the seventies, like you said, Sarah. So, an important reminder about that and a really impressive piece of research there so that brings us to the end of our summary of a really interesting issue of the emergency medicine journal before we leave i'd like to wish you a happy christmas or happy winter solstice or whatever you might be uh, celebrating this december Uh, i hope you have a wonderful time full of festive cheer and we will see you next time
1: goodbye and uh, happy new year as well